Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents the Roundtable Podcast, Episode 80. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Lauren Harris. And I'm Dave Robison. And you've tuned into the Roundtable Podcast. On the Roundtable Podcast, we invite writers to come onto the show to pitch a story idea to us and our esteemed guest host. And then we pick the olives of inspiration, crush them into conflict, character, and plot, and filter it all down into extra version literary, literary gold. gold. <laughs> Continuing the classic vibe, the Greek vibe. This is this is going to be the Greek episode, I think. Let's 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 rock that. That's awesome, Lauren. <laughs> Lauren Harris, my my co-host. You know, later on in this opening segment, I'm going to turn the mic over to you so you can tell us about the awesomeness that you have going on because I know that you do, and I'm so eager to hear of it because you've been doing some awesome stuff out in the world but before we do that if i may let's welcome our guest host back to the to the big chair awesome returning from his 20 minutes with a fabulous discussion of of deep intentions and and source impulses of the writerly craft please welcome back to the big chair Peter Arulian. Peter, glad to have you back. I, I know you're in the midst of your book tour. Actually, you're probably just wrapping up the book tour uh, uh, at this point, but delighted to have you back in the big chair and really looking forward to workshopping a story with you, sir. Thanks for making the time. Yeah, glad to be here. Now, okay, there's stuff going on in your world. I know there's stuff going on in your world. Uh, uh, so, so please, if you would be so kind, regale our listeners what is happening in the world of Peter Arulian? Well, my, my second book in uh, my epic fantasy series from Tor, uh, entitled Trial of Intentions, um, just released. Yes. Woo. Um, long time coming. A lot of unfortunate reasons for that. Um, not all my doing, but it's finally out. Um, I like to tell folks that because of the delay, um, I wrote it as an entry to the series. So if you haven't read anything else by me, you can jump in with this with this book. Really? Yeah, yeah. I I made sure that um, any of the important pieces from prior work are right there at the beginning, so that you're you're kind of caught up. Very cool. But there is a continuity. If you did read uh, the unremembered first, will the will the story feel like it's continuing? Yeah, absolutely. I worked really hard to ensure that prior readers would be fine transitioning, and that new readers could start here if that's you know. For whatever reason, if that's what they decided. That's awesome. I've got, I mean, I've got some other uh, stuff coming out. I've got a lot of uh, short stories typically set in this fantasy world coming out in various anthologies uh, over the next few months. And uh, I have a novella that's likewise set in this universe that is uh, just releasing. Um, I've got a short story collection also set in the world. Um, a lot of this speaks to something you and I spoke about uh, briefly, which is um, I'm kind of a fan of this this notion of transmedia storytelling. Yeah. And just to sort of do it in a nutshell, what that means is it's, it's telling um, story in various um, art mediums, whether they're visual or written or auditory, that can stand alone, but that when taken together, recruit to a larger story experience. And I'm um, using the strengths of the, those various mediums, because obviously it was something like a comic book does things better than a novel does and vice versa. And so a, a transmedia storyteller will use the strengths of the various mediums to tell story um, that can be experienced discreetly 
but that if someone who experiences them all or, or components of them t- together, they, they get a larger experience. Um, and I've, I've done my, you know, with my limited budget, I've done my own version of that with my series. That's awesome. And and friends, if, if you're intrigued by this whole transmedia vibe, go back to Roundtable Dialogues number two. We had Robert Pratton and Andrea Phillips and J.C. Hutchins and Amanda Havard on, and we talked at length about the transmedia vibe. And Peter, that's, that's awesome because you've got, I mean, you've got a soundtrack in the works for the Vault of Heaven series, right? I do. With luck, it'll come out this year. Woo-hoo. I've done some, some webisodes. Um, I've done a bunch of short fiction, obviously the novels, and then way on the back burner is a is a graphic novel that would kind of be the same thing. So you kind of get the idea. Yeah, absolutely. Are are you a are you a convention goer, Peter? Do you hit the cons at all? I do. I've been pretty kind of woodshedding the last few years, mostly just because of work and, <laughs> and writing. Um, but this year with the book out, I'm going to hit some. I'm going to go to uh, MissCon in Missoula, San Diego Comic Con. New York Comic Con, probably Gen Con. Ooh, very cool. Uh, very possibly World Fantasy. Um, so you know, the, uh, uh, there'll be some smaller ones that I'll, that are more regional that I'll probably try and get to as well. Because while I dig all of the the digital ways that we can communicate now, uh, I really do enjoy kind of being able to sit in a lobby bar with with someone face to face and have a conversation. Absolutely. Well, what about Worldcon? That's going to be in Spokane. That's right in your backyard. Yeah, I've got, you know, the unfortunate circumstance of being a, a working stiff is I've got limited vacation time. Ah, uh, yes. So um, I'm, I've got to parcel it out. And I think I will, the the trade-off I had is either Worldcon or New York Comic-Con. And, <laughs> and um, uh, in, that, in that contest, New York wins. I can see that appeal. Yep. It, it wins, like, not just for the con itself, but and not just because I can see my editor and my publisher, um, but I'm a huge devotee of Broadway. And any, <laughs> any excuse to go see a Broadway show... Oh yeah! Oh, the theater geek. I tell oh, you, man. Lauren, they're everywhere, man. Everybody, every. I would say a good seventy-five percent of all of the the co-hosts, guest hosts, and guest writers have mm-hmm. some kind of theater experience under their belt as a writer as well. That's awesome. I've never been on the stage, but I did audition for uh, our local Civic Light Opera to do Jekyll and Hyde. Have you seen Jekyll and Hyde? No. Oh my lord. Uh, do yourself a favor and do not watch the David Hasselhoff version. <laughs> yeah, he lost me at Hasselhoff. I'm sorry. Yeah, don't don't do it. Um, but uh, for, you know, to to you know, delight yourself. Go when you know we're done here. Boot up on YouTube and listen to the original cast recording of Jekyll and Hyde, mm. and um, the. It's phenomenal. The the vocalist who sings the lead, he uses his voice in such a way that he, in fact, the first time I heard it, I thought it was two different vocalists, but he uses his voice in such a way that you it literally differentiates between Jekyll and Hyde. Wow. It's, it's phenomenal. And, and the music itself is just amazing. I can't think of a better reason to make the New York scene. Absolutely. Well, let me real quick turn the mic back over to Lauren. Because, uh, uh, Lauren, you've got some awesomeness coming out, and I really want to make sure that our listeners are aware of it. Would you Would you, Would you? you hold forth with some cool news? You know me. I'm always happy to talk. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, um, I've got a couple of things coming up on the narration front. Um, I've just released the second book in the middle grade 
fantasy series that I'm narrating, uh, which is called Haven Revenge of the Viper, and that's by DC Acres. So that has just come out and um, is ready to be in your ears now. <laughs> and um, I'm actually working on recording as as uh, as soon as I hang up with you guys <laughs> back in the booth, recording Shadows on Snow, which is a flipped fairy tale oh, by awesome. the lovely Starla Hutchton. That's fabulous. You're perfect so for that. I, I, it's so exciting. It's my favorite thing that I've ever narrated. <laughs> and on the writing front, um, I have finished the second book in the Mill Road Academy Exorcist series, and that is called Girl, The Girl in Acid Park, and that's probably going to be out in August. So, hooray. God, turn that around fast. That's yeah. awesome. Very cool. And friends, I will tell you that I was privy to to some of the first draft uh, uh, readings from The Girl in Acid Park, and it's fabulous i highly endorse it why thank you he's just saying that because he's my brother uh, no no if i was your brother i'd be ripping you up one side and down the other That's no true. this this, this goes true. this goes against that grain no it's fabulous it's fabulous so we're looking for that in august cool and um the story i actually workshopped on the roundtable podcast yes. uh, song of the heretic is now two books and uh <laughs> Because it, it just it's too big for its binding. So I I split it in half and have gone back in and removed some stuff. So it's it's in its revision stages right now because I'm I'm having to reorganize it so that it fits neatly into two books um, that is satisfying in each segment of that. Sure. Um, so I'm I'm working on that and. You know, our, our wonderful guest host mentioned that he likes stories about music, so that definitely counts. Music <laughs> yes. magic all the way. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Peter, this is definitely a, 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 a story you'll want to get in on at some point. It's good stuff. Good. Yep. And we'll sharpen up the knighting swords for when that hits the world. <laughs> Uh, and uh, on the editing front, I'm coming up on my six-month anniversary as an assistant editor of Intergalactic Medicine Show, so uh, that's been awesome, and I've been learning a lot. And the last thing is that uh, the Kickstarter for the anthology that I pitched and am now editing, um, it's called Elysian Springs, the super-skilled nursing home for aging superheroes. <laughs> <laughs> and the Kickstarter for that is going to be in July. Oh my God, you are going insane, aren't you? I am. I'm absolutely <laughs> bonkers right now. And I've just finished up my semester at school. So suddenly I'm looking at this nice long stretch of months when I have nothing to do but put nose to grindstone, apply butt to chair, and get some work done. Get her done. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm glad that this episode is going to be posted on the internet so that I can have the miles of space that I will need to get all of Peter's stuff and all of Lauren's stuff into the show notes uh, uh, so that our listeners can make with the clicky click and and check out all of this fabulosity. Um, our I'll, job's not to make your job easy, Dave. Apparently not. And and you're doing your job very well, I might add. Uh, but I'll tell you what, let's 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 dial this back just a second. I want to I want to take a pause and and give a little podcast airtime to another awesome ebook or a fabulous podcast, something along those lines. And when we come back, Peter, Lauren, I want to sit down with both of you and I want to workshop a story. What do you say? Sound good. I say hi-ho. Hi-ho, indeed. Dear friends, don't you go anywhere. We will be right back. 
In 1947, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists created the Doomsday Clock to gauge the threat of nuclear war. The further the hands are from midnight, the safer the world is. The closer to midnight, the more imminent the threat of nuclear war. But what happens after the hands reach midnight? What awaits those who survive the initial days of that nuclear war? What will life be like at half past midnight? Half Past Midnight is a post-apocalyptic thriller written by Jeff Brackett. It's the story of Leland Dawson and his family as they struggle to find their place in the changing society that awaits the survivors of the Doomsday War. How will their decisions affect their new friends and old enemies in the changed world of Half Past Midnight? Would you survive the world of Half Past Midnight? Welcome back, dear friends, and now we dive into it. The reason you're here, the reason we're here, the workshop segment. And this does not happen without a bold and courageous, a creative and courageous guest writer boldly striding up to the writer's chair. And, dear friends, our guest writer grew up in several small towns in Texas, exploring drama, choir, and writing, rising to the ranks of staff writer and photographer for the hometown city newspaper. He served in the Navy for nearly six years as an aviation electronics technician and afterward became ensnared by the allure of alt.starfleet.rpg, baby, <laughs> developing several storylines simultaneously. He and his wife have competed nationally as autocross racers, and then in 2014, he caught the NaNoWriMo bug, dusting off one of his many nascent story ideas for the competition. And now, thus emboldened, he has risen to the ranks of guest writer at the Mighty Roundtable podcast. Dear friends, please welcome to the writer's chair here at the Roundtable, Keith Marks. Keith, dude, it's never easy. I've been in your shoes. <laughs> in my show, I've been in your shoes. And it's never easy to put your baby up for scrutiny. So much respect. Thank you for stepping up, man. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to the night. Uh, it's going to be a blast. It's going to be a blast. Now, look, let's dive into this, Keith. I'm keen to get to your, your your story pitch. You know how this works. We give you five to eight minutes. You give us the the, the title, the genre, your target audience. Give us a, a, a hook line and some thematic uh, structure. Introduce us to the world and the characters. Give us some, some tent poles of story structure, and we will we will riff off into brainstorming goodness. I'm, I'm getting out of the way, dude. The mic is all yours. Well, I thank you, sir. So the title of my story is The Heaven's Bridge, and it's a basic science fiction piece of which I think the audience is primarily going to be adults. Uh, my hook line, a man who dedicated his life to service in the infantry special forces struggles with being shuffled off to a backwater posting in the fledgling recovery corps after uncovering widespread corruption in the fleet. As he tries to come to terms with the way events have unfolded, he and the crew of his new recovery ship are shot out into the deepest of space in search of an ancient colony ship. Now, this is not going to be your average 
roundtable story. While I could have chosen the specifics of what the crew finds out in the darkness of space, there are so many opportunities. I hope to see what literary gold the roundtable could produce, if not constrained by my limited range of ideas. <laughs> At this point, I don't have an antagonist for the main story arc, and there's not a, a set story. I have a structure for the world and characters, as well as ideas for the types of colony ships they could uh, encounter, but I haven't chosen one yet, and I haven't chosen the exact theme of the story. Okay. Um, thematically, with so much of the story as of yet undecided, I have only the vaguest of the themes planned. The individual struggles of the main character and his crew, as they are all thrust together in tight spaces and shot deep into space, are already evident. I know what the end result of the mission is supposed to be, peacefully bringing back the people on the colony ship uh, to be reintroduced into the modern universe, but exactly how that comes about is in flux. For my world, currently my timeline is set 3,000 years in the future, but that is still fluctuating as the story takes shape and as I try to reconcile my story with the reality of physics as we understand them. Despite the advanced year, human technology is not as uh, fantastic as one might imagine. Mankind and civilization have risen and fallen a number of times since 2015. World wars, plagues, and the like keep kicking man in the teeth and pushing him back down the technology ladder. During each of those climbs to the pinnacle of civilization, man reaches to the stars and attempts to spread the human seed via colony ships. In our current rise of man, where the story is set, we have reached a level where we can travel across the galaxy through a technology called slipgate travel. Slip is an abbreviation for synthetic linear inversion pulse. In this travel, there must be gates at both ends to travel smoothly. The original form of travel provided by slip technology is referred to as a slingshot. Powerful computers calculate how to snap a wormhole to a point in space with no receiving anchor in effect, flinging the ship across the galaxy. Computations plotting planets, suns, and everything else there, out there have to be done precisely, or you could be flung straight into a celestial body, ending your trip badly. These slingshots are how the gate network was built and how recovery ships get out to deep space to find colony ships. The driving force behind the gate system is the central government. This governing body is headquartered on Earth, and they have two enforcer arms, which are the fleet and the infantry. The fleet is sort of analogous to our, our current Navy and Air Force. While the infantry is a mix of Army, Marines, Special Forces, Navy, they do the fighting planet side and are sent aboard enemy ships and stations. For the characters, my main character is Christopher Silversorn. He's your basic badass planet-jumping Special Forces commando. He's given command of the recovery ship, RC-2101, called the Slip Dog by its crew. His struggle with the loss of everything that gave him his sense of purpose is a primary theme in his story. And he will have to come to terms with his new life and lead his crew if they are to succeed. The pilot of the Slip Dog is Lieutenant Simone Chin. She's a strong, straight-laced woman who has a background story arc surrounding the struggle with having this guy shipped in from nowhere with very little core training who has suddenly been put in charge of her ship. The co-pilot and weapons officer is Specialist Jack Deal. The story I've written so far surrounds Silverthorne's arrival on the ship and the fact that Deal is missing, which leads to his being rescued from organized crime aboard the station by Silverthorne and the rest of the crew. His background arc surrounds his gambling problem and dealing with the criminal element and having to correct a devastating first impression with his new commander. Sergeant 
Pavel Guerra is the ship's tech sergeant acting as the engineer. He's a short but stout man described as being nearly as wide as he is tall. Corporate Elliot Piscatchewan is an average guy who is communications tech for the ship. Corporal Sidney Alex is a nearly androgynous male character who serves as the ship's medic. Recruit Amanda Pastoron is a blonde bombshell who serves as the ship's psychology specialist. And then we have recruit Gaman Fleck, who's a laid-back, slow-spoken guy who is the ship's deckhand and the basic grunt. For the story, approximately 60 years ago, an ancient colony ship from Earth reached its destination after traveling for thousands of years. To the surprise of those aboard the ship, the planet had been recently settled by modern man. Conflict ensues, and the leader of the colony ship decides to deny the planet to anyone if he cannot have it. He crashes his colony ship into the largest city on the planet. Death, destruction, and radiation rain down on the planet, making it uninhabitable. It's at this point that the central government realizes that they have no idea how many colony ships could be out there and where they might be headed. So it begins to search historical records and space for these ships in order to try and avoid future catastrophes. This is the mission of the recovery ship and her crew. It is believed that a colony ship, the Heavens Bridge, has been located and they are sent to intercept. There are a number of types of colony ships that were used. The most basic is the generation ship, where the occupants work, live, procreate, and die as the ship moves excruciatingly slow across the galaxy. Those that launched the ship and manned it initially are long dead when the ship reaches its destination. More complex is the hibernation ship, where the occupants are kept in suspended animation for the duration of the trip, intended by either a rotating section of the crew or the ship's computers. And finally, there are siege ships. These ships have the building blocks of all kinds of life aboard, and when the ship reaches the target, the computer begins to build life, including humans, to colonize the planet. There's a number of situations which could be encountered on these colony ships and lends itself to a number of storylines. As I started writing Heaven's Bridge, I began to shape it into a multi-arc series of books. Each book would tell the story of one intercept or perhaps even a missed intercept where they slingshot into deep space and don't find the intended colony ship. The overarching plot being one of discovery and eventual conflict with an alien species. In all of their travels and colonization, the human race has yet to find any creatures with intellect greater than that of an animal. But there is a race out there that will have started finding these colony ships and begin tracking them back to their origin the Earth. Um, and as I said, what I've written to date is the story of Silverthorn reaching Sioux Station, where the slip dog is docked. As he begins to learn the ship and meet the crew, they realize Specialist Deal has not been seen in a couple of days. They trace him to the bowels of the station, and Silverthorn and his, the rest of his crew discover he is being held by elements of organized crime and proceed to rescue him. This will most likely be book one of Heaven's Bridge, with book two telling the story of the actual intercept. Okay. All right, this is this is definitely a departure for the round table to not have quite as as structured a story, but I think we can make give this a go. It's a good pitch. It's a good pitch, Keith. Now, specifically, where do you want us to focus on? What are you hoping to get from Peter, Lauren, and myself in the next you know forty five minutes or so? Um, just ideas of what they could encounter out there, um, the different kinds of situations. I've envisioned. All kinds of different scenarios of, you know, they could come upon a generation ship which has greater technology than 
the rest of humankind has because it's been isolated and they've developed things that the rest of them haven't. Mm. Or perhaps it's devolved into uh, a Lord of the Flies type situation. You know, they don't even know they're on a colony ship anymore. And and just looking for other ideas for things that I haven't thought of. All right, I think we can work that. I think we can totally make that happen. There, there's a lot of freedom here. Uh, I don't think we're going to be able to necessarily drill down uh, as specifically maybe as we usually do in a workshop. But man, let's see where this takes us. I'm I'm game. Let's do this. But before we do, we we need to cover our asses. Lauren, would you be so kind? Absolutely. Keith, you're about to experience a veritable deluge of ideas, insights, and inspirations. It's important you realize that everything said from this point forward by myself, Dave, or Peter might be complete bullshit. (laughs) This is your story, and you decide what to use and what to cast aside, okay? All right, we're covered. We're off the hook. <laughs> Very good. All right, well, it is our custom to take a quick once around the table to to give first impressions and, and ask questions of clarification. And as always, it is our custom to also defer that first round to our guest host. So, Peter Arulian, start us off, sir. What are your first impressions of, of Keith's story world and conceptions? And, and do you have any specific questions of clarification before we dive into this brainstorm? Yeah, a couple things. Um, first, it, it, there's there's definitely a ring of authenticity uh, in in your sort of read back of the larger scenario, cast of characters, etc. And I I'm assuming some of this comes from your military experience. If not, you you know you've done your homework. <laughs> um, so that's good. You know uh, you're going to come off as credible. It feels like it. You know with your narrative voice, I like that. I made. I made a couple of notes on questions um, that we don't have to like jump right into, but I'd like you to think about as we kind of uh, brainstorm and, and talk through this. I love this notion of uh, these, these colony ships that have been sent out by earth, you know, I guess to, to propagate and, and make sure that man continues to, you know, be a, a force of the universe. Um, and you can tell me if I'm, if I'm off base here, but what I really love is that, uh, meanwhile, technology on Earth's gotten better. Yeah. So they can now have these ships slingshot across the universe and get, or the galaxy and get someplace faster. The question I had is, and if I understand one of your fundamental premises is why are they going to retrieve these ships in the first place? Um, is there something about the, um, these colony ships that was, you know, in error in the first place. And so there's a reason why they're trying to go and intercept them before they get somewhere. And I didn't hear that. I may have missed it. I didn't hear that. But it feels like to me, that's a central story question that needs to be answered and will become a a big part of your narrative engine. Well, I think Peter, he he mentioned that uh, uh, one guy, one colony ship did return and the captain basically went crazy and crashed it into an, an established living ci- uh, civilization. Right. Right, Keith. Yeah, I kind of envisioned that ship. Um, I've got it kind of fleshed out a little bit in my storyline. Um, it was sent out by basically uh, a Heaven's Gate kind of cult. Um, and they're going out to Nirvana, and they they get there, and you know they they've been lived this this story their entire you know for thousands of years as they as they were traveled as to the Nirvana they're going to get, and they get there, and mankind's already there, and they can't have this Nirvana that they've promised, and so 
they just kind of go off the deep edge. And like I said, he wants to deny it to anybody. Nobody can have Nirvana if I can't. And so he just ruins it, you know, crashing his ship into the planet and, and ruins it for everybody. Which then launches a government initiative to like, holy crap, how many more of these things are out there? We've got to find them and make sure that they're not crazy or, or going to crash their ships or be a, be a threat to humanity, right? But I'm, but I'm still, I'm still missing the bit, and I, it could be because, uh, you know, I've been up since three thirty in the morning. <laughs> but I, I feel like I'm still missing the bit. Why, why did they? Why are the? Why is the Earth? Why is the central government? I think you called it. Why is it sending intercept ships in the first place? Um, because it wants to get them before they get to the planet, so that they don't have that type of. Of, of situation where there's conflict. Also, there's possibility that these ships have diseases on them that that you know mankind is, has has killed off, but no longer has immunities to, and so they don't want these ships arriving and people getting off of them and and spreading you know herpes or whatever diseases they might have <laughs> into a population that, that that hasn't had them for thousands of years, and so has no resistance. And so just the the culture shock of of coming across. The planet already, so they're just trying to to mitigate those those situations by by stopping the ships and and you know slowly reintroducing them back into the population, or you know I can see there being a plot where you know they just you know the evil government decides just to kill off the ship to avoid having to deal with it, and you know that being some conflict in one of the books down the road. Yeah, because you know. It occurs to me that a, a society or civilization advanced enough to send a ship across the galaxy um, would have thought about, you know, herpes, you know, and let's not have herpes <laughs> if we're going to drop onto a planet. And I don't mean to be fl- flip here. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, what I'm getting at is I think, uh, and you actually hit a, a pretty good chord there in, in, in your response, which is, and maybe this is just a bias of mine, but I would love for there to be some real, real tension in the reason why they're going. You know, imagine that if these these um, I don't know if you had a name for them, but these ships that are being sent via this new technology to intercept them, you know, it's it's to destroy them. Maybe, you know, maybe they've come by information that these ships, you know, everybody on them have gone wrong. That you know, somehow the evolution of this this species in that thousand years has done something. And so the mission is literally an assassination mission. I'm not saying you should do this, but the, um, the point I'm trying to make is if there's, if then you get a character who, and I believe you, one of the guys you set up was being sent to the backwater because of some, you know, bad behavior in the military. So if you've got this, this set of, at least some of them undesirables being sent on these missions, that's undesirable to do undesirable things. There's some really, <laughs> There's some really healthy tension there. Yeah. Um, you know, mm-hmm. even even if you forget the planets they're going to themselves, I mean, you could literally write this without them ever touching down anywhere. It could be all about getting that ship before it's there in order to, you know, to to basically destroy them. And then, you know, and then you get into the some of that great Star Trek territory where you actually find um, those people who are redeemable, you know, who are. Um, don't deserve to die or, or, or maybe they do, or maybe they're, they are tainted, but then you've got, um, an emotional connection as, like I say, always happens on Star Trek. Um, but I, but regardless of my riffing there, I, I want to, as a reader, I want to understand why they're intercepting. And, um, 
how they would know to intercept in the first place. You know what I mean? Let's put that, let's put that on the table as something to workshop when we get into that. I think that, I think that's an excellent point. And I think there's a lot of different possibilities we can explore with that. Cause that really is kind of going to be key to why the, why of, of the whole conceit of the story. Right. Well, it is for me. It's, it's the question that as, as you spoke and I was pulled into a lot of your details, it's the question I kept asking myself. Right. And that doesn't mean that other readers will do that. But as a, as an audience of one, I, I kept, <laughs> I kept wanting, I kept wanting to hear some reason why, um, Earth would have this concerted effort to intercept these ships. Okay. Any other initial questions or observations before we move on to Lauren? Well, I've taken a lot of time. Let's let Lauren go. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Lauren, over to you. First impressions and questions of clarification. Um, well, first impression is, I, I mean, I really like the idea of the, of the ships and them having a variety of different types of colony ships. Yeah. So I liked the, the generation ship, the hibernation ship and the seed ship and those all being like almost experimental and let's send these out and see what works. Um, and so I, I liked that detail. Um, and I liked the detail of humanity rising and falling over and over again mm-hmm. um, and not being quite as um, quite as technologically advanced as we might think. Um, one thing that I noticed that just kind of made me go eh, was the um, fact that the, the blonde bombshell character was also the psychiatrist. Or, <laughs> and I was kind of like the, the, the character that is like the trope female character also gets like the trope female job <laughs> and I don't, I don't know that was just something that struck me and i went uh, yeah 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 so I know what you. that was uh, that was one thing that struck me um but um as you and as peter was asking his questions i um the the theme that seemed to come out to me there that might be something to work with on the first mission to rescue the fir- rescue slash destroy the first ship is um what responsibility do we have to the monsters we create? Ooh, nice! Ooh. I like that. They're, they sent out these these people thousand or like however many years ago, and they don't know what they've become. But then they become these things, and when um for example that that the captain got to the the planet to find it already colonized. Um, he experienced a great crisis of ideology and identity that has been built up over hundreds and hundreds of years of space travel. Um, and, you know, it, it essentially created a monster in him. And so that and now people are going to destroy it or do they have a responsibility to um as you were initially saying uh reassimilate these people into a modern society um and those are that's a a good question to have riding on that main on that first uh ship re- mm-hmm. recapturing mm-hmm. yep you could turn that around too like sorry to jump in but there's you know we we've, we've been talking a lot about what happens with these these humans who are in, you know, inbreeding for a thousand years as they're going across the galaxy, becoming monsters. What if at the end of this, all of, you know, Earth is sending out assassins, for want of another term, um, and really the monsters are, are, are us back on Earth. Right. We've evolved to this place that we think that we are, you know, we have, we've somehow got to safeguard the universe from the, the, the version of ourselves that we sent out a thousand years ago. And maybe mm. when they encounter those, they find that the decency of humanity is what 
went out on those generation ships. And the, the thing we've become that we've begun to slingshot around the world, the universe is, is a pack of shit, you know? And, <laughs> and so that it, it could be, it could be quite the opposite. It could be that all of this great technology that is helping us, we think go out and watchdog the universe is actually the thing that's the most nefarious. And what we come in, in face to face with is this mirror of the decency that we were when we first went out to try and basically just, you know, preserve the species and have and, and you know, extend life. And yeah. that is that is pretty black and white there. But um, I do think that uh, if if we look at the ideas of colonization in general, colonization has never been something that is benign in the first place. It's always required um changing or moving something, um, sending either like changing the, the landscape to suit ourselves or ousting another population in order to settle or gain resources. So the, it's, it's not going to be as black and white as all that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think definitely looking at some colonization things and some of the conflicts of, you know, does us in the past who had this, the idea first and went out and tried to colonize, but did it slowly have more right to that planet than us of the future who got this new technology and went, well, we're just going to retract what we did before and go. (laughs) So, you know, we got here first, even though we left last and what is priority, there isn't a, a precedent for that. So, um, I can see it being very political and there being a lot of ethical questions. Yeah. I, I can see, I can see some of the scenes happening in the central government that, that we'd yeah. actually need a segment of this uh, uh, taking place back home uh, uh, in addition to the, the team that's going out. Maybe, I don't know. Ooh, could the blonde bombshell, Amanda, the psychologist lady end up changing into sort of their politician. The one that actually does the, Ooh, the liaison. The liaison, yeah. so she could be a politician, and that would make her less uh, troopy. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Put a checkbox next to that. I like that. I like that. The only other thing I was thinking was that the um, the what you said about um, Jack Deal and you know them having to get him from the from the underbelly and the criminal element of the uh, of the place and that. I I had initially thought that was like the first few chapters, not the first book. Yeah. And I kind of felt like it needs to be the first few chapters and not Even the first just book. Just the first chapter. Let's yeah, get so on that, with it. Absolutely. So that, you know, the you can have Chris dealing with his mistrust of Jack throughout the bigger conflict of finding Heaven's Bridge and that coming to a head somewhere throughout the story later on. So like, I like the idea of the crew still being fresh and being uh, unused to each other when they set out on their journey and doing their bonding along the way. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree. I absolutely agree for myself, Keith. uh, uh, I think you have three really, really strong hooks for, for your stories and for your readers. 
Um, and they've already been invoked, and I'm just going to invoke them again. Uh, like Lauren, I'm very smitten with the idea of Earth ascending and descending, as, uh, rising to a pinnacle and then crumbling back, rising and then crumbling, and maybe even pushing it out more than 3,000 years uh, uh, to give you it, give you those strata. One of the cool things about the Numenera role-playing game, if I can invoke that uh, just as a complete non-sequitur, is that it's like 9 billion years in the future, and there are all this stuff that nobody knows about because it's 9 billion years in the future. I'm not suggesting you do that, but that, that wonderful mystery of what happened before us clearly here, are these buildings, here's this technology we don't understand. That's fascinating uh, uh, and, and intriguing. And I think could be woven more intimately into the story arcs that you evolve from this. And that's one of the reasons that I put in that caveat that my timeline is still in flux. Because if you look at, you know, our closest neighbor is 4.3 light years away, which, you know, is just this incredible distance. And so, you know, even traveling at nearly 200,000 miles a second, it's going to take a thousand years to get there. Right. And so, right. and that's because why. The colony I, I, ships, yes, the, the, the colony older ships have colony all been ship. sent out before the last society fell. Yes, I mean, and then during the new various society societies. Is, okay. Right, because and that's the cool thing is that, you know, all of the colonies, every every generation that reaches this point sends out these these people and, and whatever the, the spiritual, emotional, political, cultural values of that particular era of humanity are embodied in the, the spectrum of ships that go out. And that's intriguing. I think that's fascinating. The other, the other conceit of of these multiple colony ships and the potential threat and the potential hope that they represent, I think, is is badass. I think that's got a lot of legs because we've already explored, even just in this first pass, some intriguing ideas of why and what do they find and all of that. That's got legs. The third component is your cast. And here's where some flags came up for me, Keith. Um, anytime a writer describes something as the typical badass soldier, no, characters are not typical anything. Uh, uh, they, they, they might have things that are recognizable uh, uh, and, and could be you know templated into the idea of a soldier or a warrior, but typical is the last thing you want in any of your characters. Uh, so, so the idea of typical, no, let, let's, let's, let's make Chris, Christopher Silverthorne, a completely unique badass warrior, uh, and find ways to make him unique, uh, so that he just is distinguished from the common rabble and we are invested in him. The other red flag was, I'm sorry, blonde bombshell. No, no, no. Uh, I like Lauren's idea of making her, uh, uh, giving the female character some agency and making her a liaison, giving her power uh, and giving her conflicting power, the ability possibly to countermand uh, Christopher. And if he doesn't work with her, she can pull the plug. Uh, well, and, and that's why she's the psychology um, specialist is she's the one that's going to have to relate to these people that are on the ship and decide how best to interact with them. Yeah. And it's your story, you know, and you can call bullshit on us. We're just telling you, the lady psychologist, that's that's Deanna Troy, yo. Yeah, um, that's kind of that's kind of that's kind of ladies deal with emotions because mm -hmm. ladies are better at emotions. Yeah, let, let's Bullshit let's move past that. Stuff. Let's move yeah. past or, that. Or you know, you could she you could still write that character. She you could have the female and she could be the psychologist. Just make her really, really bad at it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Like, what if, what if she's the one because she's a psychologist and she screws up everything and she nearly cost them the mission, right? Make her incompetent. I haven't read that before. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, so, wait, so wait, wait. That- so now, so wait, now we have a, a female character who's a blonde bombshell, deals with emotions and is incompetent. I don't like that. Peter. Well, the, the, <laughs> I, 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 I yeah, but you have, uh, I think you have the opportunity to take some of the tropes and twist them. Um, I mean, part of this could be tongue in cheek. Rothfuss does this with, you know, with Quoth. Quoth is, is, you know, um, it, it, I, here's the story I tell. It's like, if you go, when I go to a convention and I say, tell me what this book is, it's the young kid who has lots of magical aptitude. His parents die. He's an orphan. He goes to magical school where he finds a nefarious person who's against him and they, all sorts of bad things ensue. Tell me the book. And everybody's, well, that's Harry Potter. It's Name awesome. of the wind. Name of the wind. Yep. Right. Um, but, but everybody, uh, extols Name of the wind for its, its freshness and they're right. So the, the point I'm making for Keith is, uh, you know, I think in a, in a, in an intro where you describe it as a, uh, the person is a blonde bombshell, that's a flag, but we haven't seen how you've written this character. True. And so, you know, when you write that character, if, if she's, you know, skulking around and, and you're always seeing her cleavage, then you, you know, you, that's bad. Yeah. <laughs> if, if, mm-hmm. if this character is an attractive woman who, who, you know, has a profession and you write her that way, you know, you're still going to hit the trope, but that's what, where I'm suggesting then do something different with it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was always amazed that Deanna Troy could was incredibly insightful when it served the purpose of the plot. And then when she was really helpful, she some, somehow comes up blank. So uh, I think, you know, I wouldn't, I, I guess I would say, don't be afraid of tropes. Like I, I have a big thing about this. Um, I had this conversation with Tracy Hickman, who you, you guys may know Tracy. Oh, yeah. Kind of, um, they're, they're a great uh, shorthand to get you to a place quickly. But, and he tells this wonderful story about, he wrote, writes this dwarf and you, there's all kinds of jokes about dwarves and tropes, but he has this dwarf who, who desperately wants to dance. And he has a scene where he's looking in at this dance hall because he can't do it. I will never forget Tracy Hickman's dwarf and it's entirely cliche. <laughs> so, so the, you know, but, but he does a twist there. So don't, you know, as much as you need to be aware of these tropes, like, and sometimes we have blinders because we, we're so deep in our own genre. Um, but once, you know, like Lawrence made you, you know, very aware of this, then you need to decide, have you really written this just precisely as a trope? Or are you treating this like deliberately because you're aware and doing something unique with it? Because if you are, then congratulations. Right. But, but, but if you're going to have to do it well, because if you don't, you will get eviscerated for writing. <laughs> by me. Yes, by Lauren. And you don't well, want that. And, and, a, and a legion of other readers. <laughs> well, and the characters in, in my in my uh, my pitch, I distilled them down to – basically, I distilled them down to the, 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 the trope that, that they kind of fit. Um, you know, Silverthorn has – you know, a very rich backstory that's, you know, the very first chapter of the book is them departing from the station on the ship together, you know, and the whole process of, of launching and, you know, and then jumping out into space. And then the next chapter, it's six months earlier when Silverthorn's on Earth, you know, being sequestered because of what he's uncovered in the fleet. And, you know, and building his backstory and building their backstories with it. But I do understand about about not just making them too shallow. I mean, I mean, there's places where in what I've written, 
they're just kind of following him around the station, and I and I realize I need to fix that. Well, and the thing is, and the reason that I pointed out those those three elements that are so intriguing is that you know if your first book or the first half of your book isn't dealing intimately with those things that are so freaking cool, if we're spending half the book, you know, exploring mob culture in this particular world when there's the promise of colony ships out there that need to be found, then I think you're starting your story too early. I think you need to push it way back and get to the action uh, uh, and, and, and worry. Let the, let that backstory be implied. Maybe. I don't know. That's then just, it's, it's a thought. It's, it's one of those things you start late, you end early. I love, I love the idea of the captain. He, he gets his, his orders for his new ship, he goes and, you know, has to deal with Simone Chin, who doesn't like the fact that she's been basically surpassed for, you know, captain Yeah, that's or, a nice touch. By this, by this guy that just showed up and doesn't know any of them. And then she's kind of like, well, fine, you get to go find Jack. And, like, that's the first chapter. And then, you know, Jack has a bad impression on him. And then they're all launching, and none of them are getting along because everybody's unhappy about something. And then they get out there with their orders to go find this ship and recover it, and they get a message from, you know, the powers that be saying, by the way, now that you're out there, uh, we don't want you to recover them. We want you to destroy the ship. Yeah. And how do you how do you deal with that? How do you deal with that? Suddenly they've got this mm. new moral quandary to deal with. And right. how is everybody going to react to that? So, Peter, let me let me turn it over to you. Where do you want to start digging in here? What's what's the first thing that that's jumping out? She's like, we, we got to fix this. We need to know this. Well, I, I kind of come back to where I started with, you know, why? Why are they doing it? And I feel like it feels fuzzy to me and it um it might just be me and maybe i haven't in reading the manuscript it would be clearer but you have this earth civilization that is rising and falling i i personally grapple with the idea that we won't have completely imploded as a planet and you know and, and there's not going to be us to keep trying to send ships out so i wonder if you know sufficiently advanced it's not more true that the ships that are trying to find the colony ships are actually trying to save humanity because Earth's gone. And maybe the colony ships are, I, I know that I'm, I'm jumping right to narrative. Sorry. That's no, that's cool. Bring it, bring it. Absolutely. And, and throw out the what ifs that's, that's Mojo right there. But, but I keep, you know, I keep wondering like the, the colonizing of a planet, I feel like that's been done a lot and, and it can always be done again and done better or differently. Um, and I and I won't say that I'm like this monstrous reader of science fiction, so um, that's my caveat. But it, what interests me is this idea that that there's this unique reason why we're going after the colony ships, and it's not, and we don't even ever have to touch down on. You know, it, it could be the case that humanity back on Earth has entirely collapsed. Maybe the the, the ecosystems entirely collapsed, and the last you know the last um, ships that have this advanced you know, travel technology in order to rescue humanity have to go and find some of these colony ships um, and try and, you know, because, and maybe that's complicated by the fact that they'd learned that the technology that the colony ships went out with was a failed technology. And most of these have been reported that they're dying. And so literally it's a race to save humanity across the stars. And then you get there and then you can, that can be complicated by, you know, genetic mutation or whatever, whatever sort of uh, unique circumstances arise on a generation ship. Sure. The, the, that kind of conflict where um, 
I don't feel like I've read that before. And I like your construct of the, the technologies and, and the, 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 the future racing to catch the past. I want to know why. I want there to be a very compelling reason. And then once they get there, I want those things to come into violent conflict. Your ending that you described at one point about they get some you know people and they safely bring them back, that feels um, it, it was super flat for me. Um, the, or maybe it just didn't feel like the stakes were high enough. You know, I, um, I feel like you've got this, this great technology and you've got, I think you've got some, some stripes in these characters that I could care about. Um, and I feel like you can write this authentically, but I don't, with, with such a huge canvas, I'm not feeling the stakes. Well, I like, I, I like the idea that you threw out of the earth being devastated. You know, because there's there's nothing that has been said so far that has indicated that Earth is aware that any of these colony ships have actually reached a planet. Right. You know, so so for all we know, you know, the first colony ships may have landed out across the galaxy and have built a a galactic civilization and just never came back. Could be that, and it could it could be someone I think mentioned. What if what if the the civilization on earth. And I, I, you know, I do like this idea that somehow the earth has completely failed. And so the remnants are, have to figure out how we're going to survive as a right. species. Yes. And so they say, but, but maybe, maybe that's compounded by the fact that, uh, they also come to the realization that the colony ships they sent out had some fatal flaws. Maybe that it is a disease. Maybe they find out that there was something about the genetics of the people of earth you know, a thousand years ago or 3000 years ago with those people that went, that would be absolutely deleterious to any organism, biological organism in space. And it's their moral duty to make sure that those things are not done. So while they're also racing to save themselves, they've got to save the universe against, you know, their predecessors. And so you, you could bring these things into conflict. They're going out to try and stop them. Uh, You, you could have that. They've already established, uh, you know, colonies, but you could also have them on this ticking clock. That says, hey, we know that our first generation ship is supposed to touch down in, in two months. Um, you know, Earth just blown up, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, you could introduce a time, a, a time uh, factor there that could make really ratchet up the tension. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. What about you, Lauren? What, what are you thinking about as far as the reason why we're searching these things out? Well, I like the idea that um, of us searching these things out because um, the Earth is is failing because you've got this whole um You've got this whole back and forth of the the future um, racing the past, but then also trying to preserve the past if we think of the Earth as representing the past. Um, and you've got already the seed ships in um, in your under your belt right there that could potentially rebuild some of the things um, that have been lost on Earth, and maybe they don't even know everything that's been lost on Earth, but. You know, if it's something like a medicine that they can no longer yes. get because they no longer have the mineral. Well, or, or just the basic genetic code. I mean, you know, those seed ships could be gold. Yeah. Yeah, because especially if they can build from from the atomic level up um, creatures that uh, the genetic map has been, in, uh, you know, put into the system, then you could... You could rebuild the Earth that way. You could tear. I mean, they, are they terraforming ships? Maybe they are. Maybe they aren't. But yeah. you know, there's there's a lot of questions there that could um, 
that could be used. And, you know, especially if you end up with um, one of your characters being some sort of a scientist that um, has that goes along for for that reason to um, to control the seed ship or try to figure out how to work the seed ship. See now, he, oh, yeah, that yes, exactly. I love the idea of of Earth on the verge of collapse. You know, maybe we, you know, we've we've definitely got a base on the moon. We probably settled on Mars, but all of these, you know, in solar system colonies are dependent on Earth for basic raw materials. They're they're, they're just not self sustaining. If we don't have any other planets to draw on, then the stakes are ratcheted up way high. And if we're going through some sort of genetic breakdown, you know, intergalactic uh, was it interstellar had the, the the collapse of the biosphere in some way, shape, or form. You can come up with any kind, any number of of catastrophic things that are creating a doom for Earth, which is basically the doom for humanity. Um, well, and it's possible that you can use both. That the the powers that be don't agree on whether they should yeah. be going for a a generation ship or a seed ship, and so they send them out in the general direction of one. And, and then you've got different factions, and and you you know there can be a race between faction one and faction two. We've got to get to this generation ship first because we're going to save it. If if we don't get there first, then this other faction is going to destroy it. That's that's one definite cool story arc. There wasn't an antagonist, so. Right. And and now we can now we can set up these two factions, neither of which are particularly good or evil because uh, uh, we can get into the whole let, let's let's keep it nice, dark gray, but keep our villains uh, uh, sympathetic. I think, Peter, you had mentioned uh, uh, you want people to feel bad when your when your villain dies uh, uh, and, and feel a little sympathy towards him as as uh, his his plans come crashing down. I, I think that's I think that's vital and, and, and really enriches the story. What's, what's, that would be really interesting if you can put in another little bit of uh, personal conflict between Chris and Jack there, because Chris doesn't trust Jack, and you know maybe he doesn't trust him not to just skip ship and go to the other side. Sure. Well, I'm. If it looks like the other side is winning. Now, what I'm intrigued by, and what's starting to bubble in my mind, is the idea of multiple storylines, and I'm talking multiple books or short stories or whatever, but you know. Along with 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 Chris Silverthorne and his crew out in space, I would love to have another storyline exploring the archaeology of Earth and the discovery of these previous cultures and and the technology that that embodies and how that affects Earth and from there then affects the the the, the agencies that are out there in space dealing with these colony ships. No, that would actually be an interesting development partway through, like the turning point at the middle of the book, is if one of the characters that's down on Earth, you know, going through and basically doing the excavation research, um, figures out about the um, the seed ship that is yes. basically going to be in the same type of area that the generation ship is in, and then and their faction or the a faction forms then in the government that wants them to go after the seed ship instead of the generation ship. There you go. That just kind of changes up the the pace and gives it a nice twist in the middle. Cool. Cool. Yeah, yeah. And and just archaeology has always been kind of a thing for me and digging through ancient cultures. The idea of future people digging to ancient cultures that are future to us, <laughs> I think that's kind of badass. Peter, where, where, where are you at on all of this? Well, you gave me an idea there. What, what if in the, in, the, in the process of trying to find answers as 
like assuming like some of the ideas we had where Earth is failing, that the folks on Earth are doing doing archaeological work, right? They're doing sort of source material work. Um, the, the the last bits that they can do to um, whatever on Earth. And what if they find out through whatever they're trying to do there that the Earth itself was a seed, right? Um, there was a colony ship that came and did Earth like way way back, and they've lost that uh, history. Nice. And what they what they discovered there is that. From its inception, it was doomed to fail. It's why they've had these cycles and they're ultimately failing now. So they realized that in order to save themselves with all these colony ships they've sent out, which are essentially repeating the cycle that they've just discovered, the only way to preserve themselves is to go and fix the thing they've discovered on Earth. But they, but then you could, I like the idea still of this ticking clock where, yeah. you know, the, there's some reason why they have to get to these ships by a certain amount of time. You could still have, I think, Dave, you mentioned this idea of factions. You could still have, like, political factions, some that are saying, look, um, despite this new evidence, you know, we're, we we think the plan is sound. And there's no reason to believe that the cycle is going to continue. You could have another faction saying, look, we believe that there's this, this fatal scientific flaw in this whole process of colonization. We have to either abort it or modify it. Um, and maybe the conscription of some of these characters who like I still want to understand what he what the one guy found out um, that caused him to get assigned to this like unfortunate duty. Maybe the, the faction who who gets enlisted to whatever side I think you want to play most sympathetically is your is your roustabouts right? It's it's the hand yes. solos of the world. Yes. It's not mm-hmm. the it's not the federation you know the federation not the big with all the best ships. It's the ragtags. Um, but but you know so you set them up as a little bit of the underdog. A little bit more sympathetic, but with you know plenty of willingness to do dastardly things to achieve their ends. Yeah. Well, it's it's kind of funny because I actually had started writing a story at one point where it was the discussion of two factions of scientists over this um, experiment they had going on and whether they should um, euthanize the experiment or you know do something to help it along its way or get it out of whatever was stuck. And in the end, you find out that they're aliens talking about Earth. So talking about uh, just just to kind of uh, rip off everybody on, the, in that, on that ship being kind of Han Solo-ish in some way, um, one way that you could make the um, Amanda a little bit more unique, and I'm sure you have some character stuff for her that already is, but um, is if you have her have, for whatever reason, um, in, in the past, approved somebody, um, especially if she's military, approved somebody for return to action when she really shouldn't have. Mm. And um, that, could be some, that could be somebody that ends up um, either coming back to haunt them at some point um, sure. or being on the opposite, uh, being on the people who, were, who they're racing against. Or somebody that knew them and like if they were killed in battle or killed somebody else in battle, you know, for whatever reason, that action came back to haunt her. That's a nice touch. I like that. I like that a lot. That humanizes her a little bit more. You know, and one thing that occurs to me as we're talking about this, you know, all of these ideas, uh, uh, you know, Keith is talking about, it sounds, what Keith is talking about is basically Star Trek. Uh, uh, multiple, epi- epi- almost an episodic nature to the novels 
where, you know, all of the, the many of the ideas that we're talking about could be incorporated in a subsequent novel. If it's almost it's almost like a serialized pulp fiction thing where you've got the, the, the same characters or the same you go back to the same touchstones, but you're presenting them, putting them in different situations. What I'm reminded of is Nathan Lowell's uh, Age of the Solar uh, Clippers. A quarter share, uh, quarter share, uh, half share, captain share, full share, um, where as you go forward in the series, the character has advanced again and again, and you're introduced to a new level of experience in the world, and thus you're exposed to a different level of story and and conflict and and event. And I could see these guys, I could see this totally be like an A-team thing where somebody in the central government uh, uh, is putting together a ragtag, ragtag group of misfits and, and underdogs to do dirty jobs. And, and you know, Amanda can be, well, no, she's not going to be the liaison. Or she, somebody could be the liaison uh, uh, and the watchdog for that. And then slowly as each novel progresses, these guys get more credibility and be and move farther farther up in the in the range of things as they explore and and, and seek out new things that's just a vibe that, that that struck me as we were talking well and i just finished listening to um owner's share uh from nathan lowell i just went through the whole series i've been listening to orson scott orson scott cards earth unaware series yeah. um so i've got a lot of space stuff going on and actually, when I first envisioned this, I saw it kind of as an episodic thing. Like uh, back in the mid '90s, there was a series called Space Above and Beyond, and it was about these space marines and their battle against the alien chigs. And you know, it, it was always it was always weird because they were flying in space one episode, next month they're on the planet running around. And but that was just kind of the way I saw this as just continuous over and over. They go back out and and they encounter different, you know, and just keep sure. building the story. Sure, there's an escalation there. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, guys, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the clock and I'm seeing it's kind of ticking down here. So I'm, I'm going to move us into the final stage here. Uh, uh, I know we've kind of been riffing and talking and, and, and all kinds of ideas been pinging around. Uh, uh, but let, let's, let's, let's take one more turn around the table and, and give, some, give some final thoughts, some, some, some advice, uh, some, some other ideas you didn't get a chance to toss out during the workshop proper. Uh, uh, and just, just fill Keith's pockets full of literary gold and send him on his way to write this. Uh, Peter, we'll start with you, sir. Final thoughts for Keith? A um, little maybe summation of, of things I've said and heard. Um, I, I, and you may have this, uh, but I feel like very central to uh, me caring and for you to have, I think, a, a real working narrative engine here is the reason why the, they're intercepting these these ships. Yeah. And um, um, we've given you a bunch of ideas. You, you can have more ideas. If you if you have an idea or if there's a real conceit there, uh, it didn't come out in your pitch. Um, so you either need to articulate that better. Um, or if it's there and I heard it, it wasn't sufficiently motivational for me. Um, like I feel at, at the scale that you're telling a story like this with this kind of technology and this kind of canvas, the, the stakes kind of need to be high. You had this moment where you talked about the mob stuff and there was lots of great little stories in, in, um, Babylon five that just took place kind of on the space station and they were awesome, but there was always this larger thing, right? With the rim. Yeah, and, yeah. and so, um, and I feel like 
where you start this needs to be at the rim level. It needs to be at the the stakes of humanity level. Mm-hmm. And um, we're going to go out and we're going to do this thing. It's going to be hard. And, and you can set up the political factions and those kinds of things um, as they make sense for you. So I, I think if you if you land that and then you populate the the narrative with char- with flawed characters who are doing this thing, you know, um, maybe for the right reason, um, but doing it the wrong way or the inverse of that. Like, I, I, you don't need to tell me, but I hope you do, you deeply explored, like, and I, I apologize, forget the name of the character, but this guy who's reassigned, like, there's something that, that stuck with me, that this guy was reassigned for, he found something out. It could be that this piece of information that he has discovered and it causes him to be assigned to this crummy detail or it could be that he he gets that information and elects to go into this detail. Um, you know, becomes he becomes something of a savior figure, right? Um, uh, we've said Han Solo, but yeah. that, that that character is very sympathetic because I can identify with a Han Solo who he thinks about needing to get paid and struggles with also the conscience of doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. And um, and I don't think you have to land these ships anywhere. In fact, I think it's really interesting to consider that part of this whole mission is to intercept them so that they don't do what they were originally intended. Um, and there's a lot of lot of reasons. Or I think there's a lot of angles and why or how you could accomplish that. Um, but I think every all the other parts. Um, and I and I get the fact that you've got to give us thumbnails of characters, and I'll trust that you you won't deliberately write cliches that people will, will hate. Um, but you, <laughs> but, but, but you do need to be aware of them, of course, because, you know, um, many good writers have, and have a good beta reader because many good writers will, will do it kind of unthinkingly with, with no sort of malice or intention, but I'll trust that mm-hmm. you're going to have the parts there. Uh, what I, what I really want though is, and I don't, I don't think you have to start with theme. I th- heard you talk a lot about theme um, some writers do like that. Jacqueline Carey starts with theme. A lot of writers I know, theme comes later as they sort of look back and think, oh, that's what I was writing. Came about. later for you with, with Unremembered. It did. Like it always comes after for me. And then it's like pretty glaring once I'm done. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't struggle to figure out what your theme is. I would, I would, I would most define what you think your big story question is. And if, um, and maybe you've got that. And if you do, I just think you need to sort of, uh, sort of hammer it more, articulate it better. But if you haven't really landed that yet, and, and I, I think it's a certain thing around why they're intercepting and you may decide it's something else. But once you get that, uh, for me anyway, based on the conversations and hearing you kind of set this up, once you get that, I think the other stuff that I heard is, is going to be okay. I think it's yeah. going to sort of, it's going to flow in around that and, um, and you're going to be fine. And I have a, I have in my brief acquaintance with you, I have confidence that, you know, you, you, you know, this, this language of, of rank and file. So, um, I'm actually interested to hear it, but yeah. like, I would love if you land this, send me an email. Cause I want to, I want to know <laughs> what you decide your, your central story question is. Yeah. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I, 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 I think we're all kind of in that, in that zone right now. Lauren, what about you? Final thoughts for Keith? Well, story question was a, was a, one of the ones that uh, I was going to say as well, because the the danger in in world building so expansively before you have a plot idea, and I do this, so I'm not criticizing, <laughs> I'm just commiserating. 
um, is that sometimes it's hard to then zero in on what awesome thing can touch on as many of those cool points of world building and still be a single cohesive story. And I think once you know exactly what it is you want to happen and what, what your central theme is and your not theme necessarily, but your story idea um, um, is going to be, then you have all of the uh, ingredients here to cook up something really awesome. Yeah. Um, the only other things that I would um, say is that I, I'm, you mentioned you had a really um, fleshed out backstory for Chris Silverthorne. Um, and uh, it just, it seems to me that he has to be interesting for this story to work. Yeah. He's the lead. And, and um, you know, as, so as Dave said in the beginning, he, he can't be typical. He needs mm-hmm. to be, he needs to be engaging. He needs to be not your typical special forces captain of a ship. Mm-hmm. He just needs to have, have some, some, he needs to be a rogue and a scoundrel and a nerf herder, basically. Uh. Um, <laughs> and uh, the last thing that I'm going to mention is, uh, and we didn't t- touch on it because it's probably not even important yet, but I always like stories to have a little bit of romance in them. Mm, so, good point. You know, that's that's a very human thing that might, you know, be a way to throw in even more conflict. It's just something to think about. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, like um, and also thinking about in the future, how is romance going to be different? And in these different cultures that have evolved from the various ships that have been sent out, what sorts of interplay can you have with um, culture and conflict of cultures? And um, uh, that would be a very interesting area to throw in a romantic element as well. Yeah, so that's it for me. Very cool. Very cool. Uh for myself, Keith, uh, uh, we just recently had Justin Landon on, and he identified the thing that he finds uh, uh, common to most highly successful stories is the fact that right up front they ask a question that cannot be answered unless you read the book. And figuring out what that question is is compelling. Uh, and knowing for you as a storyteller what that question is that you want to pose, you know, will Earth survive is a really good question. Uh, so going back to the whole idea that Earth is, is falling apart. Um, and Earth isn't really even Earth. Anyway. Yes, sure. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, also, you, I heard a lot of, I, I, ha- I want to share all of this backstory. I want to I have the backstory be the story. And I would say, don't. Uh, one of the great questions is, uh, uh, this guy's been disgraced. Why? I want to know instantly. He's been disgraced. What did he do? Don't tell us right away. Let that evolve and come out through the storytelling of the revelation of these characters. Don't give us their backstory up front. Hold that back. Give us characters that live that backstory and represent and present the traits inherent in it but don't reveal it until it becomes relevant to the story. Their backstory is not the story. The survival of Earth is the story. And their existence in that will, rev- will, will mirror you know, the existence of Earth and their existence is, is parallel. I ramble. You get the idea. Now, real quick, I just want to give you a, a narrative that occurred to me during all this great discussion. Um, one of the cool things, one of the cool conceits of some stories is the gathering of the ragtag group. 
And if you've got Silverthorn with a commission, uh, uh, maybe maybe you you have them going out there with the whole crew. Maybe the whole crew isn't gathered. Maybe they're scattered across various stations or sections of the earth or whatever, and he has to go gather them. And then each individual person can have a moment of, of limelight in the evolution of this opening segment of the story where we gather these, these, these misfits together to create this team. Now... If the last place he goes to gather the last member of the team is the is the station where the colony ship with the 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 madman crashes, they're the only team on with boots on the ground that can help the central government deal with what's happened. And in going and, and in doing so, they find in the ship's recorder the fact that there's a second ship inbound. And they have to go out and find it. And again, this ragtag group of misfits are the farthest ones out in system because they've been sent to a shithole out in the middle of nowhere. That's where the ship crashes. They're the only ones who can save Earth from this impending doom that's coming in the form of a second ship that we've already seen is a devastating thing. That's a possibility. I just tossed that out there. Uh, So anyway, um, now... Look, Keith, you know the rules of the roundtable. You you write this bad boy. You put it out in the world in any way you choose or deem, whether it's a PDF on your website or, or a massive six-book contract with a big, big publisher. Uh, doesn't matter. You come back, you let us know, and as soon as it's out in the world, we will knight you. We will make you a knight of the roundtable podcast. You down with that, man? Yes, sir. Awesome. Very cool. Because I am like like Peter and and Lauren. I'm keen to see where you, where you run with this. I think this has legs. So and and Keith Marks, dude, well done, sir. Thank you for bringing such rich story food to the table and and really just infusing this workshop with some goodness. We appreciate it, man. Well, thank you. I appreciate all the ideas and. Uh... I'm going to have some pondering to do. <laughs> yes, that's the next <laughs> stage indeed. Peter Arulian, our guest host, sir, thank you so much. You 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 brought uh, uh uh you raised some poignant questions that definitely needed to be addressed and and brought your mojo. We appreciate that, man. Thank you so much. No, it was a lot of fun. I appreciate you guys having me on. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed it. We did too. We always do. This is just fun. Lauren, my 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 sister of podcasting and and my good friend, this has been a delight as always. Let's do it again, shall we? Of course, I'd be happy to anytime. Ah, uh, you're an angel when you're not going crazy doing all the bajillion things that you're doing. <laughs> well, I can always make time for you, Dave. Ah, uh, you're an angel. You're an angel. You're a podcasting angel. Uh, dear friends, as long as we're doling out the gratitude, we would be remiss if we didn't include you in that. You complete the cycle for us. Without you, without you receiving some of this literary gold, we're just four people on a Skype line blathering away. So thank you so much for, for tuning in. I hope you got as much literary goodness as we did out of this. Now, here's the thing. We're all spent. We're all exhausted, as we are after a, a roundtable brainstorming session. But you know what? In seven days, it starts all over again. Another courageous guest writer bringing an awesome story for workshopping. Another brilliant guest host pouring wisdom into our ears. The froth of the roundtable continues on and on. But... I know, seven days. We keep making you wait. That is so evil, cruel of us. 
Lauren, what, what, what can our readers do to, to lessen the sting of that long wait between episodes of The Roundtable? They could apply pen to paper and make some words. Yes, indeed. Go write. Put your stories in the world, people. That's what this is all about. And I will tell you, as I always do, dear friends, you find what you're looking for. So look for that top-shelf blue-label goodness. Look for the sparkly package at the back of the tree that you forgot was there. And holy crap, there it is. And if you look for it, I promise you, you will find it. We'll be back in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frothy, and be awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means please don't sell it but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David Labroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at writerspodcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.